Good morning. Let's open up in prayer. God, as we have already entered into your presence in such a meaningful way through the songs you've sung, through the sharing, through our time together, I pray now, um, as we enter into your word, as we take the next 20, 30 minutes to uh, explore what it is that you have to say to us through this ancient text, these words that are thousands of years old and yet we still believe through your Holy Spirit uh, have the power to shape and form us, draw us close to you, teach us more about who you are, who we are, what our relationship is to the world around us. Give us open hearts, minds, ears, eyes to what you want to teach us today. In your name, amen. We were not around last week. Uh, we were in Clear Lake. Uh, and Darren, uh, for the first time, I think, since he officially stepped down from his pastoral role, uh, Darren took the pulpit to talk about Daniel. Uh, and uh, I was grateful again, as I've often been since we started doing it, for the fact that uh, our church streams. And it allowed me to catch the service and to listen into Darren's message. And Darren did a great job. It's no surprise. He did a great job of, of zooming out. Uh, and it was always kind of one of his strengths, I felt like, as he preached, is zooming out and taking a big picture look at some of the themes and the principles uh, in the book of Daniel. But it is also true that in listening to that sermon, I caught Darren in a lie. And it was a lie that was repeated often and confidently throughout the sermon. And I want it to be known that I take that seriously. I noticed he's not here today. And so another reason I'm grateful for streaming is that I know you're watching out there somewhere. And this is on the record. I think I counted five times where he says clearly, Jesse told me he's done in the book of Daniel. I'm not sure, maybe that was intended to be a hint. But what I clearly said to him was, I'm almost done in the book of Daniel. I have one more sermon left to preach. So I'm just saying, I'm grateful for streaming is all I'm saying. Because it's important to me to keep the record straight on these things. Uh, and besides, as we're going through the book of Daniel, given that we're doing a series on this book, I'm not sure how you could do it and not cover chapter 6. Because Daniel is full of uh, amazing, powerful, interesting, well-known stories that have lots to teach us. But the, the number one story in Daniel, the, the top answer on, on the family feud question about what are the stories in Daniel has to be Daniel and the lion's den. This is the pinnacle of the book. It's the greatest hit from this album of stories. And so we will now let the record state, this will be my last sermon uh, in this series on Daniel as we go into chapter 6 together. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, digital or physical, I want to invite you to open up to Daniel chapter 6. And just like we've been doing through this series, I want to just walk through this chapter together with you. And for the last time this summer, we're going to dive into Daniel and ask that question that we've sort of been asking through this series. 
when we find ourselves swimming against streams of culture, how do we have the strength to swim against that? And how can we have the discernment to understand what is worth swimming against? In the story here, Daniel uh, is near the end of his life. He's an, he's an 80-year-old man, possibly a little older than that even. He's a senior citizen. Uh, in children's books, I remember seeing pictures of this story, and the pictures were often kind of like this, uh, but that doesn't accurately reflect where things were at. Daniel was not a young man in this story. He was not a boy. Uh, he was towards the end of his life. And it's another reminder, uh, actually Daniel does this on both sides of his life. Uh, we have these ideas in our heads sometimes about uh, what you could call a window of usefulness in our lives. That to serve in the church or to contribute in meaningful ways or to be of value to society, there's an age limit on that. You're not really there until you've hit a certain point, and then there's a point at which you're not there anymore. There's a window in our lives where this is the part of life where we're useful. And Daniel, the story of Daniel, shows us that those are artificial limits that we place on ourselves. Daniel, as a young boy, as a 15-year-old boy, uh, changes the course of uh, his own people and the course of Babylon in the way that he works. And here, as an 80-plus-year-old man, Daniel, again, is being used by God uh, for some powerful things. And so those limits uh, are not limits that God sets. Those are limits that we sometimes set on ourselves. And I just want to encourage you, as you process, how to get involved in our community, how to get involved in our church. Don't allow age, one way or another, uh, to be something, to be the thing that limits you. Consider how God can use you at any point in your journeys. But... As we head into this chapter, I just want to refresh you on the context here. At the end of chapter 5, Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Uh, King Belshazzar, who was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was killed. The, the head of the statue of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's vision has been removed. And we're on to the next kingdom. And so there is a new king from a new land, a Mede named Darius, who sits on the throne. This is how the chapter begins, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I want to point this out. This speaks, I think, in a powerful way to the character of Daniel. That as a new king comes along, and many new kings come along through this book, they continue to appoint him as a leader. He will climb the ranks, and he works well, and he honors the king, and he sort of rises up again uh, in the government. And this is through various Babylonian rulers, and now here Amid takes a throne, an enemy of Babylon, and he's still respected enough to continue to rise the ranks here again. I'm just trying to imagine a scenario, it made me think for a moment, within our political landscape, which can feel a bit like war sometimes, although of course it is far removed uh, from the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians and the bloodshed uh, that was there, but even in our context, for there to be some 
political advisor who could serve under a variety... Well, the math here is about 60 years Daniel has been serving. A little more than that, probably. So, come into politics under Diefenbaker. And then Lester B. Pearson. And then Pierre Trudeau. And then Brian Mulroney. And then Jean Chrétien. And then Paul Martin. And then Stephen Harper. And then Justin Trudeau. And as these leaders filter through that somebody could continually serve as a high-ranking official, and as the leaders change and the parties change and political goals change and personalities change, that there would be someone who is stable enough and level-headed enough and gracious enough to honor each of those leaders in their own way, as flawed as they were in their own ways, and to earn the respect and the trust and the admiration of each of those men as they came through and be promoted over and over again by liberals and conservatives alike. I guess in a world that is so divided, where when we think about our country we've become so entrenched in our political identities, Daniel was a man who was able to go, I serve the kingdom of God above all else, above all earthly kingdoms. And one of the things that this did for him is that it brought out a spirit of peace and patience and kindness and humility and self-control in Daniel. And Daniel lives a life that says, I can work well with, I can respect, I can be gracious towards people of all stars and stripes, of all political leanings, even when, as those kings did, they do things that I don't support or I deeply disagree with, I can serve and honor and support in this context because more than serving any earthly king, I serve God. But we see that pattern repeated over and over again with Daniel. And there's another pattern that gets repeated here. The other leaders around Daniel grow jealous. There's pride and jealousy that creeps in and they look for a way to bring Daniel down. Let's keep reading here at verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So, the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened towards Jerusalem, and he began plotting countermeasures to take down the other officials. No, that's not right. And he asked God to strike those men down and remove him from the situation. No, that's not it either. Daniel simply did what he always did 
Nothing changed. It says here, three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. I heard a quote that I thought was quite powerful. A preacher was speaking about this passage, and he adapted a quote from Aristotle. So Aristotle was a Greek philosopher, lived not too long after Daniel, actually. But Aristotle had a saying, excellence is not an act, it is a habit. Excellence is not an act, it is a habit. Excellence isn't something that you do, it's not a one-time choice. Excellence is a series of small, consistent choices. It's setting your life up in a way that's slowly shaped or moved or formed towards excellence. When we look at the story of Daniel, and it strikes me especially in this moment, I think we can say the same thing of courage. This could be one of the main themes from the book of Daniel. If you remember one thing out of this series, this is a good thing to remember. Courage is not an act. Courage is a habit. Courage is not an act. It's a habit. Daniel has prayed three times a day for 70 years. He did it in chapter 1 when they tried to force him to change his diet. They did it in chapter 2 when the king threatened to kill the wise men because nobody could interpret the dream. His friends did it in chapter 3 when they were being asked to bow down to this golden image over and over again, when Daniel was in trouble or felt threatened, he turned to God in prayer. It was his gut instinct. It was a habit that he had developed. It became as natural to him as breathing. And so here then is a question for you to consider. What is your instinctual response when you are being threatened? When trouble comes, when you experience hurt or unfairness or crisis, when you're being pressured, when you're being pressured at your job to do the wrong thing, when you're going through a relationship crisis with your spouse or your parents or your children, when when your friends at school are trying to push you or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever is trying to push you to do things that you know are wrong, what is your gut reaction to these things? I want to quickly go through a few of the common responses we can have to pressure in our lives. I owe this uh, to J.D. Greer. He's a, he's a preacher in the southern states. He, he came up with these categories. So here, here we go through a few of them. Uh, first is panic. You get scared and you cave. Look, there's no way out. The pressure is too strong. My friends are all doing it. I'll be an outcaster or I'll be misunderstood if I don't. Everyone in my business does it. I'll never survive if I don't. Daniel could have looked and said, the Medes and the Persians have made this law and it can't be changed and if I do it, I'll be dead and so I don't have a choice. You could justify here too, it's only 30 days, it's not that big of a deal. I can pray in the basement for 30 days. That's something people can default to. So you don't have to raise your hands. The pros is that. Is this you? Are you someone who responds in panic? Although, if I said, you have to raise your hands or you'll be in big trouble then I guess we'd have the panic people going, raising their hands a little bit. But this is one way that we can respond. The second way that I want to highlight is pride. This one keeps coming up in Daniel over and over again. Pride is this root sin in our lives. 
And sometimes pride can be tricky because on the outside it can look like boldness in faith. I will not yield. I will not back down. I know what is right. I can overcome. The difference, I think, is an internal one. Pride does not come from a place of humility, of course. It doesn't come from dependence on God. Pride comes from a heart of selfishness and self-sufficiency. It's an I'm better than you attitude. You can't beat me. One of the key indicators for whether you are thinking with pride and selfishness as opposed to what you could call righteousness is your prayer life. It's a really simple indicator. I heard someone say that prayerlessness is the indicator light on the dashboard of a Christian life that warns you that pride has set in. Prayerlessness is the indicator that your heart is running proud. Sometimes we think we don't pray because we lack discipline. Same reason our diet doesn't work or our New Year's resolution doesn't happen. And that's a part of it for sure. But ultimately, I think we can say prayerlessness is rooted in pride. If your prayer life is struggling, it's often because you've convinced yourself deep down that if you just dig in, if you try hard enough, you can do it on your own. You don't need help. But as we've seen over and over again in Daniel, pride leads to destruction. Pride is a cancerous thing that eats away at our spiritual lives and distorts and twists us away from God. So we have panic, we have pride. Third is preemptive strike. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. You play dirty, I'll play dirtier. Since the world developed nuclear weapons, we've had significantly less war between developed countries, but it has less to do with actual peace and more to do with the understanding that we can all blow each other off the face of the earth if we want to. The term is mutually assured destruction. If you take me down, I'll make sure that you're going down with me. And we sometimes live out our relationships this way. The way that I can make sure that you don't hurt me is to make it clear that if you do, I can and will hurt you back worse. You'll think twice about messing with me. And that can look like it solves the situation on the surface. But again, it is something that rots us away on the inside. Panic, pride, preemptive strike. And then we come to the fourth response, Daniel's response, prayer. Bring it to God. Lay it at his feet. Come to me, Jesus says. These are some of my favorite words in all of scripture. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Prayer takes our burdens and yokes us together with Jesus. He walks beside us. He carries the load with us. And what was impossible to bear now becomes a walk in faith with our Savior. Our burdens may still be there, but we don't carry them alone. My grandpa was like this. One of my key foundational memories of my grandpa, I must have been about 10 years old, it was just a simple moment. I remember my parents were away, they were watching, my grandparents were watching us at our place, and we were about to leave to go somewhere. There was some appointment we had to get to, and we couldn't find the keys. 
And you know that feeling. You've got to get out the door. You've got things to do. You've got places to go, and the keys are gone. And your heart rate jumps up, and the search gets more frantic, and probably blame starts to set in. Who moved them? Where did they go? What happened? But Grandpa simply stopped, and he took my hand, and he said, Jesse, let's pray about it. Let's pray about it. And so we stood there in the entrance, and we prayed that God would help us find the keys. And then, after a minute or two more of searching, we found them. I don't actually remember where. That's not part of the memory that sticks. But Grandpa's gut reaction, his first impulse when trouble came, was to pray. And that one moment has shaped me. Courage isn't an act. It's a habit. And so the question for you today is, what is your default response? Panic? Pride? Preemptive strike? For Daniel, it was prayer. He chose prayer, not just in this moment, but through his life. Because he trusted God, and that evening, he prayed as peacefully as he had every other one. Let's keep reading. This is verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually, rescue you. That word there, continually, it's a significant word. If you are an underliner or a highlighter, it's a good word to underline. Verse 17, A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation may not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? There's that word again, continually. It's like Daniel really wants us to catch this in his story. Courage isn't an act, it's a habit. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. 
And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in God. So why was Daniel saved? Not because he was special. It's a theme again over through this book over again. Daniel lived the life, had the success, lived through these incredible stories, not because of how great he was or smart or, or charming or strong, but because he had trust in God. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must feel, fear and revere the God of Daniel. And then Darius preaches a pretty good sermon here. Listen to what he says about God. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the powers of the lions. Daniel is a fascinating book because we see these amazing sermons preached a few times by these pagan kings. How, how do they learn these things? What's going on here? They learned them as Daniel and his friends live with consistency and humility and courage in front of them. And that's one of the points of Daniel, I think. If we can live like Daniel did with that same humility and trust, then more than just sort of surviving in Babylon, we can be a source of change and renewal and growth in the world around us. The chapter ends like this. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So let's try and land this plane. Daniel's courage in the lion's den did not come from some superhuman strength, from a moment, from a choice in that moment, but rather from a consistent life of prayer, of humility, of dependence on God. Months and years and decades of small, faithful acts of obedience. Patterns he had created in his life. If you wait for a moment of crisis to be courageous, if you wait for a crisis to be brave, chances are you will fail. That choice isn't the kind of choice that gets made in the heat of the moment. It's made now, in the everyday. Now is where you make the choice. Now is where you build the patterns that are going to determine how you respond in that moment. The other thing I want to do here is to draw back a little to what some of Darren spoke about last week. And it's come up several times in different ways through the series. That the story of Daniel, the life of Daniel doesn't exist on its own. It's, it's here in the middle of this book that we have. In the middle of this larger story that God is telling. And what Daniel does in so many ways is in fact point us toward Jesus. There are a lot of parallels here in this story specifically between what Daniel went through and what Jesus went through. 
So first of all, both men are portrayed as innocent. Daniel is one of a very, very short list in the Old Testament about whom there is never a mention of any flaw or shortcoming. He's a righteous man. Ezekiel says that he's one of, the most, one of three of the most righteous men to ever live. And of course, Jesus lived totally without sin, completely and perfectly righteous. Both Daniel and Jesus had jealous political leaders drum up false charges against them to get them killed. Both Daniel and Jesus had the primary judge against them. For Daniel, it was Darius, and for Jesus, it was Pilate. Declare them innocent and try to spare them. Both Daniel and Jesus were thrown into a pit whose entrance was covered by a large stone and sealed, left for dead. Both Daniel and Jesus had loving friends run to their tomb early in the morning, and both Daniel and Jesus walked out of that tomb alive. Finally, both Daniel and Jesus after this were were raised up as second in command over their kingdom. Daniel under Darius and Jesus at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. There's a song, Dare to Be a Daniel. Certainly those of you who are older than me will know this song. Some of you who are younger too maybe. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. And I think that when we read this story, we are supposed to be inspired to try and live a life like Daniel did. But as Christians, one of the big things, maybe the biggest thing that happens, is that rather than showing us what we need to accomplish, what we need to do, Daniel shows us a picture of our Savior, of the one who has accomplished it for us. Daniel points us toward Jesus. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he doesn't quote the whole psalm, but he certainly will have had it in his mind as he spoke. And later in that psalm, it reads, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. Jesus was far more innocent than Daniel ever was. But with Jesus, no angels came to shut the lion's mouths. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, many of you know that I love, I love that Bible, I love those stories. She says this, Jesus was left in the blackness, utterly alone and abandoned by God, suffering the fate that we, the guilty ones, deserved. God did not shut the mouths of Jesus' lions like he did with Daniel's. He let them tear him apart. His body was left entombed in the icy grip of death for three days before the angel finally came to roll away his stone. But Jesus was bearing our sin. And that's where Jesus and Daniel are different. You see, when Daniel came forth from the lion's den, he came out alone. And no one else was saved by God's deliverance of him. But when Jesus came forth from the tomb, he came out as the head of a mighty company of people who have been redeemed from the pit through his death. Because of the work of Christ on behalf of his people, the divine judge says, not guilty, you may go free. And so the story of Daniel points us towards Jesus. We see someone who entered the lion's den for us, who took the punishment that we deserve, who has removed anything that separates us from God, And now, when we think about courage, 
when we think about strength to swim, this is where our courage comes from. Not from our own power, but from this truth. If God is for me, who can be against me? If the Lord is my strength and my shield and my light and my salvation, of whom should I be afraid? Greater is he that is in you than anything or anyone that is in the world. Whatever lions you face today, know that we have a Savior who faced lions as well, who allowed himself to take on the consequences of the lions of sin and death in our place, so that courage isn't something that we somehow have to muster up on our own. With Jesus by our side, with God as our Father, with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, with a prayerful heart, in these things we can have the courage to face whatever comes our way. So says Daniel. Amen? Amen.